Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, let me encourage you to turn with me to our scripture for the morning in your Bibles. Now, in the worship guide, I have indicated Luke 5. But in preparation for the sermon, I want us to read the parallel version, one of the parallel versions of the story found in Matthew 9. So we're reading the same story, the same event, similar, similar event. Uh, But in Mark chapter 9, let me encourage you to turn there, beginning in verse 14. Good listening, Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Oh, you're good. You're good. We can go home now, can't we? That's great. Thank you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and and they will fast. No no one sews a, a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak for the patch pulls away from the cloak and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. Otherwise, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed but new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved this is the reading of the sacred word as we gather around it to be transformed may God add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it Let's pray together. God, in this moment of attentiveness, in this moment of attentiveness to you, still your body. Bring to our collective soul a holy hush within. Lord, so many of us are distracted by so many noises and voices and demands and responsibilities and distractions. But in this moment, I pray for your people that your spirit would speak to all of us in a way that is unmistakable. And may we all be changed because of it.
In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, we all pray. Amen. The church, it is intended to be the visible presence of the risen Christ in the world. This is the thought that has been driving these conversations. This is the truth that has been fueling every sermon for the last four weeks. It is this, that if the world is to believe that he is risen, risen indeed, as we so proclaim on Easter morning, if they are to believe <laughs> that his love overcomes any death, if they are to really recognize and encounter the truth that God's power and God's love is even more powerful than the sting of death itself, the only way they will know is if they, if they see it evidenced in the way that we live. It's not what we say. It's not how clever we, could, we can string together our theology so that it's believable. No. The only evidence of the resurrected Christ is our lived out lives. The way that we live, the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we treat one another, the way we love an enemy, the way we serve a neighbor, the way we welcome a stranger, these are the evidences of his aliveness. <laughs> That's why we say that we are the body of Christ the visible presence of the risen Lord in this life. But last week, if you were with us here in worship, you recognized that I pointed out some challenges, some challenges that the church faces in this current era when it comes to attempting to be the body of Christ here and now in this context in which we live. And last week, I, I shared with you some daunting and sobering statistics from a recent study that was released by the Public Religious Research Institute called Exodus. The name of the study was Exodus, and the subtitle is even more haunting. Why Americans are leaving religion and why they're not likely to come back. And last week, we're not going to go over the, the stats today. I highly recommend that you go online and watch last week's sermon simply to catch that information. Because the bottom line of that information, to those of us who are attempting to be the body of Christ in this world, the bottom line to that information is this. 25% of the American population now identifies as unaffiliated in any religious practice. More than 60% of those unaffiliated started out in religion and walked away. And that number, 25%, makes them the largest religious subgroup in America. Which means that in order for us to truly be the body, the believable, tangible, touchable, visible body of Christ, we've got our work cut out for us. And last week, I heard from you. And some of you emailed me, and some of us, we had a conversation on, 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 uh, in person through the week. Because those statistics disturbed you, and I'm glad because they disturbed me. It's a wake-up call, really, but I can't tell you how much delight I took in reading late that night, Sunday night, one of our college students, a 20-year-old college student, JCBC college student, uh, Caroline Mitchell. I don't even know if she's here today. 
she here today? Where? Caroline. Didn't tell you I was going to give you a shout out. <laughs> Caroline, your blog that you do on an ongoing basis called Collecting Life, she has an ongoing blog called Collecting Life. It is the most insightful collection of, of reflections about life and God and faith and love in, 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 in Caroline's experience thus far. She's writing and, and quite a good writer. She writes good. <laughs> Late that night, she, I was forwarded a copy of a blog she wrote that afternoon, somewhat in response to the sermon. Um, in the sermon, I was calling us last week to love. That in the midst of a changing culture that we don't completely understand and we can't completely get our, get our arms around, our default position is love. Always has been, always will be love. And reflecting a little bit on that call to love, Caroline also wrote at that intersection where we find ourselves in this political crisis in the nation and wrote a fantastic reflection on what each of us should live up to and into as our identity as uh, people of Christ. But what moved me most, Caroline, was the name of the, of the blog, that particular blog entry. The name of the blog entry was this. Hey, it's time to wake up. Yeah. Hey, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. That might be the best theme of a sermon series that could last for ages. It is time for us to wake up. Not only did Caroline reflect along the way that day, but I had conversations with many of you here, even at one of the midweek meals. And I got another email, uh, this one from Melba. Melba, are you here? All right, didn't tell you I was giving you a shout out either, Melba. Melba ref reflected on the sermon and, and shared her own sorrow over the statistics. This makes me sad to hear of the trends in our culture, of those walking away from religious experience, those walking away from faith. It brings a great sadness, she said. But the last line I thought was most provocative, uh, Melba, in your, in your email, she said this, let me know who I can help in any way. Let's change the survey. Let's change the survey. And sisters and brothers, I'm here to tell you we can and we will. We must change the stats, change the ne move the needle in such a way that the survey really does report something different. But I'm here this morning to tell you that if we're going to effect a change, if the body of Christ is to be truly the body of Christ in this radically fast-moving, changing society, there are some things that we have to come to grips with. The first is this, <laughs> that this is new territory. The church has to confess that the church is in new territory. Some of the changes, some of the, the, the way the culture is shifting and moving puts us in a posture that, quite frankly, we have never been in before. And I want to unpack that in just a moment, but maybe the best way to unpack it at the front end is to say it reminds me of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. You remember Dorothy, she falls asleep and she has this dream of a tornado and they survive the tornado, but it lifts her high above the land that she knew. And when she lands, she ends up in, in a territory that, that's unfamiliar to her. She walks out and she's in a world of color like she's never seen. 
flowers and trees that she doesn't recognize because they're unfamiliar, they're new. And in that moment, she clutches her traveling companion, Toto, close to her side, and she says, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And I want you to look at her expression on the, on the camera, on the, on the screen, because her look, I believe, is the look of the church in this current era. Because if we were being honest, so much has changed extra outside in our context in which we are called to be the body of Christ. So much is changing that on some days, the most honest thing that we can say is, is one collective voice. I have a feeling that we're not in Kansas anymore. But listen to Dorothy. Because soon after she walks out of her house into this new world where, where it's unfamiliar, the good witch and the munchkins come out to meet her, right? And they ask, where are you from and who are you and how did you get here? And this is what she says. What happened was just this. The wind began to switch the house to a pitch. Suddenly, the hinges started to unhitch. That's when the witch, to satisfy an itch, went riding on her broomstick, thumbing for a hitch. The house began to pitch. The kitchen took a, a, a slitch and landed on the wicked witch in the middle of a ditch. Thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. Knock it off. But I don't know that Judy Garland could be aware of how profound and, and how provocative her, her song really was then to speak into a truth now because the wind has switched. The cultural wind has switched and all of the hinges that previously held together all of our expectations about what it means to be the church and do the church and live religiously in this world, the hinges have begun to come unhitched. One of the greatest hinges that is becoming unhitched, I, I simply want to describe it this way, the experience of a cultural religion. You know what I'm talking about? For decades, decades, and maybe longer than that, you and I have enjoyed the convenience and the comfort of most of the time, especially if you're, in, if you're in the South, you grew in the South, of most of the time doing church and doing faith and living as, as the body of Christ in a culture that not only respected, but empowered and equipped and organized around religious practice. Don't believe me? Let, me? let me tell you a little fairy tale. Boys and girls, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there used to be no sports on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, I know, strange. Not only that, but schools and organizations didn't plan anything on Sundays and, wait for it, Wednesday nights either. Because they knew you had to get home early enough on Saturday to be in Sunday school on Sunday. Right? The winds 
have switched. And we are now living at a time and in a place where some have described our experience as post-Christian. Now, don't let that word or that phrase throw you off. It's not a bad phrase. It's descriptive of where we happen to be. The best way to understand what it means to be in a post-Christian America is this. Post-Christian simply means when Christianity is no longer the dominant social, cultural, or political influence. Sit with that for just a moment. When Christianity is no longer at the center, influencing all the other mechanisms and modalities of life all around it, but rather, I mean, ask yourself, when was the last Little League meeting that said, well, we can't have a tournament that weekend because that's church? Or the school, we can't take a trip that week because that's, gosh, that's church. The wind has begun to, to switch. And can I just tell you, we've got a choice to make here. We can stand around and whine about it all day. Now we can whine about it, and I can come up here every Sunday, and I can tell you how awful it is, how frustrating it is, because I, I too, am raising children in a culture that has demands upon them, and I get it. I understand. We can whine about it all day long, or, or, can I offer another perspective? As a pastor of a church in this current era, Living in a post-Christian world doesn't scare me in the least. It excites me more than you might know. Because what I know is that in the world right now, the place where the church of Jesus Christ is most alive are in countries where the governments not only don't support their religious practice, but oppress their religious practice. Our friends from Elam will tell us, that the fastest growing church and the fastest spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ right now on the planet is in Iran. So part of my pastoral, um, I guess, processing or interpreting of our current cultural milieu, our cultural context is this. I am not afraid in the least that we live at a time when the church is not at the center of the power structures of this world. Because now is the time where we separate sheep from goats, brothers and sisters. Now is the time when wheat is separated from chaff. Now is the time when the road narrows and we ask ourselves, who is still on it? Yeah. I love a blog that I read this week, in addition to Caroline's. Ed Setzer wrote a blog for Christianity Today, and it was entitled, Evangelicals, Culture, and Post-Christian America. And do you know what he suggested in this article? He suggested that, hey, listen, if if we're in a post-Christian America, if, and if we're at at a place where we are no longer the most dominant influence in our society, and we are not, then perhaps that's not the worst thing, because now it's time for the church to rediscover what it looks like to engage the culture from the edges. From the edges, not at the center, but from the edges. And when I hear that and I consider that, man, I am so excited about Johns Creek Baptist. I'm so excited about leading a church in this current era that may be described as post-Christian because the edge is where Jesus started this movement. 
among the marginalized, among those who are pressed to the edges of society. And now it's an opportunity for you and I to discover our choice is not to fight to take back control. Our choice as the body of Christ is to not somehow have all the, the power, but rather to learn in the midst of this ever-changing culture how to engage from the edge and be the body. By the way, the original body, I mean like the guy, Jesus, started it there. Perhaps it's time for the current body of Christ to catch up with him. So what does all that say? All that says that, that in the next 30 years, our ministry, the way we do ministry for the next 30 years will look different than the way we did it the last 30 years. And it must. It must. But if we are going to be the body of Christ in a, in a world that seems to be changing every night, then we must be willing to morph, to adapt. To allow God to demonstrate for us what God desires the body to look like and be like and move like in this new and unfamiliar territory. Why? Because we're not in Kansas anymore. But how do we do that? Well, the challenge for us in being the body in this ever-changing culture is this. The challenge is figuring out a way to engage the ever-changing culture with the never-changing message. Are you with me? Learning and it's hard work because we've not been here before. This is not, there's no blueprint for this. There's no, there's no playbook for this. Well, maybe there is. But learning how to present and engage an ever-changing culture with a never-changing message is our mandate if we are to live and breathe and thrive as the body of Christ in this current era. How do we do that? The first thing I think we do is we recognize through humility that we don't completely understand all the changes that are happening. And we don't understand completely the experience of the 25% who, who have walked away from religion or who choose no religion and the first step is to humbly seek to understand them. To understand them. That we might be able to engage them in a way that is authentic and welcoming. Now, we have to recognize in our attempts to be the body in an ever-changing world, we have to recognize the difference between our method and our message. Between the method, you know, the mechanisms, the modalities, the, the means by which we do ministry, all of those things can change and must change, and frankly, they always have changed. But what doesn't change is the message that those mechanisms and modalities and means are meant to carry. Jack Welch was the former CEO of GE. You know what he said? He said, if the rate of change inside an organization is slower than the rate of change outside the organization, the end of that organization is in sight. 
The church must find courageous ways to always be ready to morph by God's leadership the way we carry the message so that the unchanging message is heard by new ears in a new generation for years to come. That means that context is everything. The context in which we do ministry is everything. <laughs> Can I tell you a story? There is a, a book on my shelf called Prayers. Imagine that. <laughs> it's by Michael Quast. It's a collection of very creative prayers written to, to help us in a prayer life. And one of, the, one of the prayers is entitled Green Blackboards. He was writing it at a time when the blackboards had changed from being actually black to green. Remember that? I began, to thinking, I began thinking about his, his analogy and it occurred to me when we began public education that at the earliest form, those students who could afford it and could bring, they would bring their, their own personal black slates, right? And my source on that is Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> oh. And Glenn. I'm kidding. Oh, no. Sorry. Oh, that was too easy. It was too easy. Look, and they moved. It morphed the method. Are you with me? Watch me. Move with me. The method of the little black slate changed to a big black board in order for the message of education to continue. So the black board was now the standard. And then somewhere in the 20th century, somebody who understood that we process things with color better or, and there's other reasons why we changed to green. The black boards became green boards, but then they didn't stop. The green boards became white dry erase boards. And now the white dry erase boards have become um, digital um, smart boards with touch screen uh, sensitivity, right? And now the students... On BYOT, Bring Your Own Technology Days, they bring their little black slates again. <laughs> but just a couple years before I came to serve as pastor here, uh, a couple years before that, our church in Orlando had a college student who was, who was going to Africa, going to Liberia, uh, to Monrovia, Liberia, to work at the Ricks Institute. Now, the headmaster of the Ricks Institute, uh, school for their children there, ironically, is a member of JCBC. I don't know if you know that or not. Olu Minje. And I'm looking, he sometimes sits over this way. Sometimes he's here, sometimes he's in Liberia. The headmaster is a member of our church. That particular trip, this young lady was going to serve school children there and to prepare her and equip the students. When she left, she was sent with 30, guess what? Little black slates. Because in that context, in that context, that made sense because in that context, that was the method, the modality, the mechanism, the means by which the message of education was going to be delivered. The church must always be willing to change its method in order for the message of Jesus Christ to be heard. And I think that's what this text is all about that we read a moment ago. This is a beautiful text and we, we read about Jesus and his disciples being confronted by some other disciples of John and some Pharisees. And, and they're really writing Jesus about this. They say, Jesus, we've noticed your behavior. You don't follow the customs. You don't fast on Tuesdays and Fridays like the rest of us. Good tradition-keeping 
Jews follow? You do, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus said, because context is everything. That's not a direct quote. That. He said, because if this were a funeral, we would be fasting. But this is more like a, well, like a wedding because the bridegroom is here and it's time to eat and drink and dance and sing. And then he tells two little parables, bundles them right next to each other. He said, look, think about it this way. Nobody takes a piece of, of cloth that has not been washed, some pre-shrunk cloth, some un, unshrunk cloth. Nobody takes a piece of unshrunk cloth and, well, sews it to an old garment that's already been washed because the moment you sew it on there and, they, and then you wash it, then the piece that wasn't shrunk will shrink and it'll tear away at the stitching. It'll ruin the whole thing. That's ridiculous. And he said, if that doesn't make sense, think of it this way. Nobody takes new wine, brand new wine, still fermenting wine, uh, the wine that still has gases bubbling and growing, the, the ever-expanding wine of, of, of new wine. Nobody takes new wine and puts it in in old wine skins because the new wine would burst the old wine skins and everything would be at a loss. But you put new wine in new wine skins. During that time, the wine skin was made sometimes out of goat. They would kill the goat and skin the goat and, and clean the skin and dry it out. And then they would lop the legs and the tail and the head off the goat sew it up in those places to create nubs and fill the new skins with new wine. And because the new wine was still fermenting and filled with all those gases and still expanding, it was okay because the new skin was able to stretch and expand because the new skin was still flexible, able to carry the new wine but if you were to put that new, ever-expanding, still-fermenting wine in old skins that are already stretched to their capacity, have already met their usefulness, they will break and bust and everything will be wasted. And Jesus is attempting to demonstrate that he is the new wine of God. Remember this story about turning water into wine? It's in John 2, and his mother comes and says they're almost out of wine, and he turns the water into wine, and it demonstrates that there is in Christ a kind of wine that never gets old and never runs dry. And you say, well, I thought old wine was the good wine. I thought old wine tastes better. It does. So I'm told. <laughs> but Jesus said... Yes, everyone prefers the old wine, but what if? Oh, please stay with me. What if the point of this wine that has come to us, this ever-expanding, still-fermenting love of God, what if the point is not for us to enjoy its taste only? What if the point is for us to become such good stewards of that wine, such good wine stewards of God's love that we make sure we carry, we convey, we transport that wine in containers, skins that will allow future generations and those who are not able to drink of it yet to one day drink deeply. The methods must always 
be ready to morph. But the message of God's loving wine, the, the tender grace of God that is still fermenting and always alive, it never changes. Yeah. So what does that mean for us? It means that we must always be ready to morph the method, but maintain the message. And what is that message? What is that message? It's the same message that you carried into this room this morning. Yeah. It's the same message that you carried into this room this morning because you are here because there is something about that wine that is drawing you. And you've got a story to tell. And I'm going to tell you, I, I mean, the churches can be creative and clever and innovative in all of our programming. We can do everything possible to make sure that that 25% of the American population gives us another look. We can do all things possible if we're smart enough and clever enough. But I'm telling you, no matter what we do, if the individual members of the body of Christ don't have a story to tell, then it's a waste of wineskin. Do you have a story to tell? Are you able to say, somewhere along my journey, I was met by this man. I encountered something in the presence of God that changed me forever. Do you know what it's like to be forgiven for the awful thing that you thought you could never get past? Do you know what it's like to have been reconciled with another human being because of the love that God infused in you that was even stronger than you? Have you been made well when you were sick? It, whatever your story is, that is what will endure in the midst of this ever-changing culture. That's how we engage an ever-changing culture with a never-changing message. The never-changing message is that he still touches lives. He touched the life of the woman who reached out and touched the hem of his garment, and she became clean. When he touched the paralytic lying on a mat, he stood and walked. When he touched the man who could no longer see, he saw. But all of those stories are only stories until he touches you. And I just want you to know as your pastor, I, I cash in all my chips on this. He touched me. He touched me. And my life will never be the same. And if you allow him to touch you, to transform you, it's not just your life that changes, but everyone God puts before you.